Thank you, Matt. And I want to add my greetings to what has already been spoken by Mike and Matt and everyone else. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be the father of what I consider the happiest drummer in all evangelicalism. Thank you, Joshua. I want to welcome you to Bethel, and I mean that in a couple different ways, more on that in a moment, but I'm glad that you are here for worship. No matter how you think you got to be in this place this morning at this time, I promise it matters, and God is not surprised. This is a part of his prescription for your person. And we're going to talk more about that for the time that we have left together. Way back in the middle of September, hard to believe, September 12th, we started walking through this book of Genesis. This is now our 11th week together where we're talking about specifically the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is what the Germans would call Heilgeschichte. It is the salvation history of a fallen people that are pursued relentlessly by a holy God. Now that shouldn't even be a thing. But that's the gospel, a whole bunch of stiff-necked people who continue to shake their fists at God despite his gracious invitation into prosperity and into blessing and bounty, they continue to walk the other direction, and God pursues them anyway. So this is Moses, as Matt's already mentioned, writing to the children of Israel about who their God is because they did not know their God and that unawareness of God and that unawareness of what to do in the presence of this God was producing all sorts of errors, all sorts of faults, all sorts of fault lines in their lives as individuals, as their lives as families, and their lives as a community. Now, we've been walking through the narratives of the story of Abram that started way back in Genesis chapter 12, this pagan 75-year-old moon worshiper who lives in Mesopotamia with a barren wife, and God says, there, right there, that's how I'm going to redeem humanity, through that dude sitting in Babylon. And he brings Abram into the promised land, and we have this wonderful, long, lengthy narrative in Genesis that, that passes down to Isaac. Isaac finally has twins, Jacob and Esau. We've walked through all those narratives. And now at long last, we're getting to the sunset of the life of even Jacob. Last week, we looked and saw that Jacob was a struggler. And we're all strugglers. And that Jacob struggles with God and God dislocates his hip in preparation for him to enter into the land and to have a reunion a reconciliation with his brother Esau. That takes us to Genesis chapter 33. Now, if you've got your Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 33. We're going to cover three chapters very, very briefly. I'm just going to walk through chapters 33 and 34, and then we'll unpack chapter 35, trying to help us ask and answer the question, who are we and what are we doing here? We should know that. Now, after Jacob has wrestled with God and God has changed his name to Israel and dislocated his hip. Finally, Jacob has sent everything that he has, all of his family, all of his goods across the Jabbok, which is the little, the little ford, the little tributary of the Jordan River. It's sort of the northeast border of the promised land. Now Jacob goes in and chapter 33 is all about the reunion with Esau and it goes rather strangely. His big brother, his big brother by about mm, seven and a half minutes, we suppose, he raises his eyes in chapter 33, and he sees his brother coming with his entourage of 400 soldiers. And right away, you would think, well, Jacob's had this incredible experience, this set of experiences, these mountaintop moments where he's seen an escalator from God, where God descends and says, I am with you always. No matter where you are, there I will be as well. 
He's seen the camp of God's angels, and he named that place Double Camp. He's actually wrestled with God himself and had a name change. And you would think, well, this is it. Jacob is forever transformed into nobility and dignity and wisdom and maturity. Nah, not so much. Not so much. No, no. Doesn't happen quite yet. Jacob decides he's going to line up his family in sort of a not-so-affirming way. He takes the servants and puts them up in the front, and then he takes his maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah, and their two kids, and puts them next. And then he takes Leah, you remember Leah, the weak-in-the-eyes wife. He takes Leah and her seven kids and puts them next, and then he takes Rachel his favorite, and her son Joseph, and puts them at the very back. And his thinking is sort of like, listen, if Esau and his 400 warriors come charging through here, just whacking and stacking, maybe they'll just run out of steam before they get to Rachel. But then there's this sort of thing where he just clicks as he starts to walk, and he literally clicks because his hip's been dislocated. He actually says, you know what? No. And he goes to the front of the line. He passes them all. Don't think it was lost on the family members who was placed where. Oh, they knew what Jacob was doing. But he goes and he encounters Esau and he's thinking, here it comes. I'm about to get a spear thrown right through my neck. And so he bows low seven times. Now I'm going to tell you, this is about as good a health as I've ever been in. There's no way I make it past number three. If I bow three times, number four is just not going to happen. This guy is over a hundred He's got a dislocated hip, and he goes low, humbling himself seven times. How is this going to go? But Esau, the text tells us, falls on his neck, not to choke him out, but falls on his neck. It's an embrace. He weeps. They kiss one another. I missed you so much. Why all the angst and animosity? I've missed you so much, brother. And they weep, and they cry, and they exchange greetings, and Esau looks up and goes, whoa, somebody was certainly fruitful and multiplied. Whoa, who are all these people? And Jacob says, well, uh, the Lord God did all this. In other words, I know I stole your blessing. Don't blame me, blame God. There's a whole lot of livestock, a whole lot of little ones. I'm not responsible. He blames God. And it sounds sort of like worshipful. It isn't. He's blame shifting to God so that Esau won't get mad. Well, what was the deal with the gift you sent me yesterday? Those five herds, Esau asks. And Jacob, at least for the first time, is honest. He goes, oh yeah, that was um, so that, you know, you wouldn't choke me out and kill me. Because, you know, uh, I didn't want you to be mad because I know that I deceived you 30 years ago. And Esau is the one who is the centered one. Esau says, my brother, I have plenty. I have need of nothing else. Keep it for yourself. And Jacob says, no, 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 no. You didn't kill me. I know now for the first time that I'm accepted. One of Jacob's fundamental needs has been met. He has been accepted. The one who needed to be nearest does not hate him. Please, please, I beg you, keep the gift. And Esau says, fine, fine, I'll keep it. Well, where are you heading? He says, well, I'm, I'm heading into the land. Esau says, marvelous. We'll go on ahead with you and we'll make sure that the way is all safe because you might've noticed I've got 400 soldiers. We might as well do something with them. And Jacob immediately goes back into his Jacobing. He says, no, actually, uh, see, the thing about that is, or uh, uh, the thing is, uh, the children, they can't go very fast. And the flocks, they're very, very feeble, which Esau's going, you mean the flocks that you just gave me? The flocks are very feeble. And if we drive them hard, they're all going to die. You go on ahead. We'll, we'll catch up later. 
Esau says, huh, okay, that, that, that's weird. Um, tell you what, I will just leave some of my fighting men with you and they'll escort you. And Jacob goes, you know what? No, let's not go to any trouble. I don't want to be a bother. You go on ahead. I will meet you at Mount Seir, which is his Esau's home in Edom. I'll meet you there. Esau says, fine, deuces, brother, good seeing you. See you in just a few. Gets out of sight and Jacob goes, everybody, we're turning right. And they go west and they turn into the promised land. They go to a place called Sukkot, which is, means uh, booths or little huts, because he settles down, builds himself a house, and he makes all these little pens and huts for all of his livestock. He was supposed to have gone to see his brother, but he lied again. After a lengthy period of time at Sukkot, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go further into the land, and he goes to, wait for it, Shechem. Now, you and I hear that and go, Sounds like any other place. No, Shechem was the heart of pagan Canaanite society. It's where Abram first arrives and pretty quickly he discerns, I can't stay here, he has to move on. Jacob takes his entire household and he goes to Shechem, modern day Nablus. It's not where God wanted him to be. Way back in chapter 28, when Jacob sees the escalator, he makes a vow to God and says, I will come back to Bethel. I will come to Bethel and I will live here and I will worship you and I will tithe. In chapter 31, God comes to Jacob and says, arise, Jake, get up and go to Bethel. Jacob this time gets up and goes, you know what? Eh, I don't really feel like going to Edom. And I like Shechem because Shechem is fertile. It's about 3,000 feet elevation, marvelous farm country. Bethel looks like a parking lot. I don't really trust that God's gonna really get things done there. I'd rather go to Shechem. He should have gone to Bethel. And he settles down, and the text tells us that he purchases a plot of land from the Shechemites for a hundred pieces of silver. Oh, no, you did not. That's not good. God had promised to give the land, all of it, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of their offspring, but Jacob's taking matters back into his own hands. And so he builds an altar there, and he calls it God as the God of Israel. And that's all nice and fine, but God wanted him to go to Bethel. So already we see Jacob beginning to forget, which ushers us into chapter 34. One of the worst, most violent, disgusting chapters in the whole of your Bible. So I'm just going to walk through this very briefly. As Jacob settles down, builds a house, buys property in the region of Shechem, his daughter Dinah, you might remember, was born by Leah. She's probably about 15 years old by now. Dinah goes off and she starts exploring because she's a 15-year-old girl and she's wanting to understand the ways and the customs of the Canaanite women. Well, pretty soon, a dude named Shechem pretty good when your name is the name of the place you live. That's right. He's old money. He's old money, this Shechem. He's Shechem, the prince of Shechem. And he sees her and he takes her by force and he defiles her. We will leave it at that. Now that would completely, permanently constrain her and confine her to a life of widowhood. She's damaged goods. She could never remarry. She would be set aside almost like in an ancient convent kind of context. But amazingly and surprisingly, this Shechem dude says, no, no, I actually like her. I want her to be my wife, which never happened in those kinds of violent crimes. And so he says, daddy, his daddy's name was Hamor, get her for me. And dads do what dads do. And okay, I'll, I'll figure this out. And so he approaches Jacob and says, hey, Jacob, this, this sorry, this is so awkward. Sorry, Jacob, this thing happens. And Jacob does nothing. Absolutely nothing can you imagine. You're supposed to try. 
because he's beginning to feel already, this would not have happened had I been at Bethel. It's my fault that we're here. It's my fault that my daughter was defiled. So he does nothing until the brothers, all the boys come in from their work in the field, particularly Simeon and Levi. And Jacob goes, oh, boys, how was your day? Yeah, how are the flocks? Oh, by the way, your sister was sexually assaulted. And they lose it. And they're going to go have this massive plan. And Jacob says, no, 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 no. We might still turn this to our commercial and economic favor. And so Hamor and Shechem come and they say, hey, listen, we want to have this girl. We want to have her as our wife. In fact, we want all of your daughters as our wives. That's a weird conversation. Why don't we all just intermarry? And Jacob says, you know what? I like where your head's at there. Great idea. Let's do it. Despite the fact that God wanted Jacob and his people to displace the pagan Canaanites. He wanted them out. God has a purpose in what he's doing, and Jacob's working against it. So the Canaanites say, listen, name your bride price. Whatever you want, we'll pay it. Doesn't matter how high it is. We're rich. We'll pay it. And Simeon and Levi go, oh, see, the thing is about that. We don't uh, intermarry with your kind. Uh, it would be inappropriate. It would be improper. You have to, all of you, all of you have to get circumcised. As if that symbol of the covenant God gives Abram and uh, Genesis 17, as if the physical act itself was actually redemptive and made people appropriate in God's eyes. Astonishingly, the Canaanites agree to it. And what we find out is they go back to their village and they go, hey, everybody, we're going to get this little thing done. I'm not really sure what it means, but we're going to get this thing done. And then we're going to take over all of this guy, Jacob's flocks and his herds and his family. We're going to take all of their stuff. And so you say, great, we're in, let's do it. And so they do it. On the third day, they're still sore and recovering. Yeah, I suppose so. Because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. Well, it happened to them. And every male is still sore and in recovery. And Simeon and Levi take up the sword. Where'd they even get swords? And they go in and they slaughter every single Canaanite male. Every last one. And then the brothers join in with bloodlust and they come in and they plunder everything. They take all the livestock, all the treasure, all the servants, all the women, all the children, everything, and they lay it bare. And they come back. And Jacob goes, whoa, that was harsh. <laughs> and they say, well, what are we going to do? Let them treat our sister like a prostitute? And Jacob says, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Now everyone's going to think badly of me. Jacob's biggest concern is not that his daughter's been raped or that there's been a slaughter of an entire people group. It's that his reputation's going to take a bruise. Now you would think after all of that mess you would think that Jacob would be furious with his two sons, but he can't because he knows what it is to be deceitful. Gosh, where did Simeon and Levi learn this scheming deceit? The apple does not fall far from the proverbial tree. Which takes us now at long last to the book of Genesis and chapter 35. We're going to walk through this briefly because I want you to see something really amazing. After all that mess in chapter 34, where the name of God is not mentioned ever, not a single time, not once. It is an utterly godless chapter. But something's going to change markedly in chapter 35. The name of God in one way or another will be uttered 23 times. Something significant is going to pivot here in chapter 35. Text starts off this way. God said to Jacob, wait, can I just pause for a moment and tell you that's the gospel? You may not think that it's the gospel. It's the gospel. After all that Jacob and now his household have done, you think God would just go and just put out 
an asteroid on the land of Canaan and incinerate everybody. No, God doesn't do that because God has promised. It's amazing. God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel. I told you back in chapter 31, you vowed back in chapter 28, arise. I want you to go to Bethel. That's the place I have for you. That's the place where you're going to be with my people. That's the place where you will worship. That's the place where you will be defined. Get up, Jacob, and go to Bethel and dwell there. Don't just take a lap and move on. I want you to stick there at Bethel. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God knows every minute detail. God's having him do something very specific, very particular. I want you to reproduce and replicate that which you did 30 years ago. A lot of time has passed, Jacob. A lot of things have changed. I am not. I am Yahweh. I am faithful. Go back. Do it again. We have no idea if that altar that he built 30 years earlier was still even there. Probably not. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, can I just pause for a moment and tell you, last Sunday evening, as I began walking through this text, I didn't like this chapter very much (laughs) because it's hard. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Candidly, there's not a whole lot of sizzle that just makes me want to get up and scream at you like I usually do. But after spending days and days and days in study and study and research and pray and reading and praying, and I love this chapter. Love it. This is the pivot point in the Old Testament. It comes right there in Genesis 35 too. Thus far for 11 weeks, we've been talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But now for the first time, we're going to see a corporate worship. We're going to see it exponentially increase from an individual, an individual, and an individual, now to the covenant community. Now it's about his family. It's no longer just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the 12. It is the nations. It is the forerunner of a corporate family thing at Bethel. I want you to put away all the other stuff, all of the idols. And they go, clink, 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 clink. Oh, I don't have any. Clink, clink, clink. You mean those idols? Clink, clink, clink. Oh, those idols. Remember Rachel had stolen her daddy Laban's idols from Haran? Give me those. They all were wearing these pagan charm earrings that had symbols on them so that the Canaanite gods could speak into their heads through these little charms on their ears. Jacob, yeah, give me all that stuff too. Give me all that stuff. And it must have been threatening, just as threatening as it had been to Laban. Because when you put your hope and trust in an idol and someone takes it from you, you suddenly feel very insecure and vulnerable indeed. And Jacob takes all of it. And what does he do? (laughs) He buries it under a tree. Do you know why? Because you bury dead things. They don't do anything. They're dead. But God says to Jacob, I am with you. And God says to Jacob, I will never leave you. And Jacob says, of God, the one who has been with me the whole time, the one who spoke to me, the one who revealed to me, the one who has loved me and led me and guided me and guarded me. He is the living one. Take everything else that is not him and bury it. It's dead. Move on. And change your clothes. This was not just because it was half off at the gap. No, no, no. This is because this is priestly language. This is priestly language, just like the children of Israel are going to see in Exodus 19 when Moses is going to say, God wants to be your God and for you to be a nation of priests. Consecrate yourselves. You 
12 people from four different moms and all stepbrothers from other mothers, and you're going to be it. Consecrate yourselves. God's going to do a thing in and through you despite the fact that you don't deserve it. God's going to redeem, and God's going to use you as an instrument of his redemption. Well, he continues on here, verse 3. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, where they should have been all along. They should have been in Bethel, so that I may take their, make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, because those metal clinking things never answer me, because they're dead, and now they're buried." and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had. Remember when they ransacked the village in chapter 34 and grabbed all of their stuff? Yep, they buried all that stuff too. You get the idea, it's like in Acts 19, when in Ephesus, all the Christians brought all of their silver shrines and idols and trinkets and the Ephesia Gramata, and they burned it all to say, we're not gonna rely on these anymore. Same idea. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Abram, his grandfather, had been there hundreds of years earlier. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Turns out Jacob was right. His reputation did increase. Now, God would have done that anyway. Just like in the conquest, when Joshua approaches Jericho, all the people of the land were like, whoa, you guys are terrifying. God would have gone before them anyway, but instead, they made a slaughtered mess of things all around them. And so people don't just respect them, they fear them. Jacob turned out to be right. Verse six, and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Now, this is an interesting side note. This is the first time you get Spanish in your Old Testament. They called it, and I'm very thankful for El Bethel. No, no, that's actually, no. It's El Bethel, the God of Bethel is what this is called. So he builds an altar just like he had done 30 years earlier in Genesis chapter 28, because there God had revealed himself to him when he'd fled from his brother. And then a very strange little interlude here in chapter 35, verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. Now there's a lot going on in this chapter. This is a chapter of transitions. We're going to see three separate deaths that usher in a new emphasis on a new generation. This is Rebecca's nurse. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what actually happens to Rebecca. The idea, more than likely, is that by this point, Rebecca has died. But this nurse, what a life. Way back in chapter 24, Abraham sends his chief servant, Eliezer, to go to Haran to find for his son Isaac a wife. And Rebecca comes back with her nurse from Haran and goes into the household of Isaac and nurses and takes care of, is sort of a maidservant to Rebecca. Presumably, when the twins are born, she also looks after Jacob and Esau, and she's still alive. The idea probably is that Rebecca has now died, and so Isaac has gotten word that Jacob is back in the land, and so he has sent this nurse, Deborah, to go and be with Jacob. And she has died after a very full life of faithful service. And so Jacob buries her under the oak, the Alan Bakuth, the oak of weeping. It is the death of the beloved servant. That generation is passing away. What will they have invested in this generation? That's the question. 
Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. Why would he do that? Why would he waste his time? Have you ever asked yourself that? Because he's promised and because he loves Jacob and he loves us. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And yet, it is interesting that God continues to refer to him as Jacob. He refers to him when he speaks to Moses as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Well, he is, but this is a transition. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in preparation for the plurality, the nation of Israel. And God said to him, verse 11, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, the God of the mountain, the God who provides, the God with all power. The same thing he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. He now repeats here to Jacob in chapter 35. Be fruitful and multiply. And Jacob's like, check, check, got it. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Only other person that's ever been told that was Abraham and Sarah. It's now being reaffirmed, reiterated. A lot has changed. God has not. God is faithful. Despite all the problems, despite all the wanderings, all the rebellion, God is faithful to these faithless people. And that's very good news. Verse 12. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. 30 years ago, he merely pours out oil as an anointing. This is the gateway of heaven, Babili, similar to what the people in the Tower of Babel were trying to create. This time, he also pours out a drink offering. The idea being, I am pouring out my entire life to receive the blessings that you have promised. I am now all in, God, says Jacob. Verse 15, so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, the house of God. Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were some distance from Ephrath, that is the older name of Bethlehem, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. Presumably they're heading south from Bethel. They're gonna go past Jerusalem, past Bethlehem, down to Hebron where Isaac's household still remains. And when her labor was its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not be afraid for you have another son. The midwife misunderstood. The midwife thought she was screaming because she was afraid she was going to have a girl. The midwife says, don't worry, it's a boy. That wasn't the problem. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, Moses wants us to understand, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. What's going on there? Some think that Ben-Onai could mean son of my sorrow, because she was sad. She was despondent that she was departing from her family. Some people think that it is son of my shame because she knew that when she took the idols from her father Laban and Haran and brought them, that had brought shame and hardship upon her. She remembered that she had screamed to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And now here, ironically, in her second child after Joseph, she's having Benjamin. She's dying. Some think that it actually means son of the south because of all the 12 sons of Jacob, only one was actually born in the land. That's interesting. It's possible it's any and all of those things. But regardless, Jacob says, no, that won't do. We're going to call him Benjamin, son of my right hand, demonstrating to the rest of the family, she was my favorite, and he's going to be my favorite. 
We're not going to call him son of sorrow. We're going to call him son of my right hand. He's the only one of the 12 that Jacob names himself. That's interesting. So we've had the death of the beloved servant. Now we have the death of the beloved wife. Verse 19, so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Verse 20, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Now, Moses is writing that about his day, 1500 BC. But interestingly, if you go to Jerusalem today, there is still a marker for Rachel's tomb. I don't know if it's the actual one, but it's still marked pretty cool. As they're leaving Bethlehem, they never quite made it to Jerusalem. Rachel dies and she's interred there in a, in a tomb on the side of the road. Jacob sets up a pillar. Israel journeyed on a pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, Migdal Eder. This is a shepherd's tower where they would erect this little wooden uh, stilt so that the shepherds could climb up and look around and see all of, their sh- all of their sheep. And so then we get this very strange little sentence. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, record scratch. Are you kidding me? What's happening to this family? Oh, this is the Jerry Springer of Jerry Springer shows. This should not be. He went and found, Reuben went and found Bilhah, his father's concubine, and lay with her. And Israel heard of it and does absolutely nothing. It's unbelievable. It's sort of what you're going to hear much, much, much later when David hears that one of his sons has assaulted one of his other daughters. And David goes, yeah, what are you going to do? I've been there. I've done that. Jacob does absolutely nothing. Why does Reuben do what Reuben does? And why are we told that here in this passage of transition? Because Rachel died and Reuben was the firstborn and he never, ever appreciated the fact that his mom, Leah, weak in the eyes, was never loved, was never accepted. There's a strange little story a couple chapters ago where Reuben goes out in the field and finds mandrakes and gives them to his mother so that she can negotiate with Rachel to have conjugal rights with Jacob. What is happening? That's so bizarre. And now Reuben is afraid that since Rachel has died, that Jacob is just going to pivot and go right to Bilhah, Rachel's servant. And he says, no, no, it's my mom's time. And so he defiles the family and he commits essentially incest and he lays with Bilhah. And Jacob says nothing. But at least now Reuben's thinking, my mom, Leah, she'll be number one. She will be the favored. As it turns out, she was, but not because of what Reuben does. Jacob does and says nothing until the very end of his life in chapter 49, he gives a stinging rebuke to his firstborn and withholds all blessing of Reuben. It's a complete mess, and yet God is working through it. Verse 23, the sons of, uh, now the sons of Jacob were 12, and we get a Toledo, because we're in a transition. Remember, the, the Toledo is the telling of the generations. The names of Leah, or the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and oh yeah, Dinah as well. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now the company is complete. Now there are 12 sons. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, way in the south where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Dude lived another 35 to 40 years after he said, I'm really old, guys. Bring me some stew. I'm going to die. And 35, 40 years later, he's still slurping jello. He ain't gone yet. Finally, his days were 180 years and Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. 
And you get the idea that this is the first time Jacob and Esau have seen one another since Jacob turned right and never showed up. So there at the funeral, you got the idea that Esau's going like, hey, bro, what happened? Like, I made this pot of really yummy red stew. You never showed up. It's still sitting there bubbling. Where are you going to? Yeah, oh, well. And so they reunite this last time, and they bury Isaac. And we find out later, they take Isaac and Rebekah way back up north, and they bury them in the cave of Machpelah, where Abram and Sarah were buried. So what do we, all these 3,800 years later, what do we take away from this passage with all this error, all of this encounter, Jacob with God and his family? What do we take away from this? Well, I want to remind us that God is faithful. I will tell you, as I've already mentioned, I spent a lot of time this week in studying and reading over this passage. And I want to be abundantly clear that the vast majority of everything that I read from commentators, from other scholars, they all have one takeaway, and all their takeaway generally goes like this. Sin is bad. You should really stop that, you losers. Stop sinning. Stop with the sinning. It's bad for you. Okay, that's, that's true, but I don't really think that's what Moses is doing here, and I don't think it's really helpful because it's not practical because it's not real. It's like giving a kid a brand new toy at Christmas, but then never giving him the batteries and then screaming at him for not playing with a new toy. It's not just, hey, stop sinning, be better. Don't be like Jacob, try harder. That is not what's going on here. There's a layer under the layer that I want us to look at for just a moment. I'm gonna give us three quick points. Each point is just three quick words. So just nine words of application or implication and we'll wrap this up. Number one goes like this. God is enough. Now that may be for some of you the most profound thing that you're going to hear today or the rest of your life. It is the truth from God's word inspired by God's spirit affirmed by God's people. God is enough. Failing to believe that God is enough is at the heart of every human error. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, a guy named Matthew Perryman Jones, he puts it this way, you cannot love in moderation. You can't partly give your heart to your spouse. Although we try, and then we wonder why there's angst and division, ism and schism. No, we love with our full being, trusting, embracing, celebrating that God is enough. In other words, if we're walking around with divided hearts, then we really don't love something fully at all. We merely want what that thing or what that person can give us. We have divided hearts with respect to God because fundamentally, we don't believe that he is really enough or that he will really supply what I know I really need. But we, just like Jacob, we have to be reminded that we are dangerously unqualified to captain our own souls. We don't know what's best for us. We simply lack the omniscience of God and we don't even love ourselves as much as God loves us. God's promise is infinitely better investment than any potential prosperity. See, Jacob was like his uncle Lot. He just looked at the land and said, yeah, that looks better. I think I'll do that. And God's going, no, go to Bethel. I want you to go to Bethel. Despite how it might seem to you, I have a plan. I have a purpose and I have promised. It's interesting in today's text, Esau is the bigger man who is actually more centered. He politely declines and says that he has and what he has is enough. And that right there is the primary way that we are to live in defense against sin. And it's demonstrated in this godless pagan brother, Esau, who was previously driven by all of his base desires. He's the one who goes, no, I'm good. What I have is enough. But your enemy knows that you've got some Jacob in you. 
My enemy knows it. He comes to me one of two ways. He either tries to tell me that I am better than I actually am, and so I am entitled to more, and so he tempts me to grasp like Jacob, and he doesn't have to work that hard. Or he accuses you with all of the filth, all of the fallenness, all of the fragility of your past, and he accuses you and tries to heap shame and angst and guilt on you so that you are low and so that you grasp for anything that will relieve the angst and the guilt and the shame that you feel. But simply preaching a little sermon to your soul, God is enough, what I have is enough, is the defense against the dark, art, dark arts. God's enough, we don't have to Jacob for more we trust him and we have peace. Third point goes like this. Do hard things. It's not original. It's ancient. Do hard things. Look, I get it. Much of our lives seem to be uphill into the wind and into the grain. And we encounter lots of resistance in our lives. Yes, everything's hard. Surprise. I know. God never, ever apologizes for this. Instead, he offers us the proper perspective so that we can walk through these seasons with wisdom. He gives us resistance training. We don't like resistance training. We'd rather just get spiritually fit quick. No such thing. He gives us resistance training. If your expectation about the Christian life is that it will turn out and everything will be wonderful and everything will go easy after your salvation, then you will be frustrated forever. No, in this life, Jesus says, we will have trouble. We will have resistance. And we have much wisdom from God's word to train us to thrive in the midst of it. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, and I love this. When we encounter, when we enter into resistance, hardship, trouble, and, tro and toil and trial, we don't ask, Christians don't ask, how can I get out of this? And I go, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Immediately, he said, no, 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 that's not what Christians should do. Ah, now I'm listening. Christians don't ask, how can I get out of this? We ask, what can I get out of this? Same person, same circumstance, all the difference in the world. Every one of us encounters resistance on a daily basis, sometimes in the most basic and seemingly meaningless ways as we're trying to follow God. But here's what happens. Monday, and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and as you walk through the day, if you keep succumbing to the little resistances that we meet, it doesn't take long at all before we are totally off course and we find ourselves at the end of the day completely godless or in Genesis chapter 34, never even thinking through the existence of God because we've just given in to a little resistance here and another little one there and another little one there and it happens really quickly. So do hard things and do hard things first. Let me get practical. Really, look at the practical specificity that God directs Jacob. Bury your old idols and distractions, literally, not metaphorically, literally, put it in the ground, build an altar there and then. Did God really need another pillar with oil on it? He's got plenty, thank you. No, it was for Jacob to do the thing, to do the hard thing. Is God training Jacob to do hard things because they prepare Jacob for more? Do the hard things first. For real, what are the things every morning that you wake up, you just hate having to do, the things that you dread most? What are those things? Make a list and do them first. Why? So that you can pat yourself on the back and blow a rotator cuff like the Pharisees for their own self-righteousness? No, because Jesus is worth it. And when you do it, it's, it's worship. I hate having to do this, but you're worth this. And you've given me arms and legs and a back that can do this. Praise God, and you do it, and it's worship. And the rest of your day has an entirely different gaze. 
an entirely different understanding of what you encounter. Find the hard things, do them first, and the rest of your day is available for relational conversations, for investment of, of, of gospel-soaked dialogue, but not when you're going, oh, I have to, uh, I have to, I sure don't want to, why is everything so hard? Do it! If you have to make your bed as a trigger to start your day out, make your bed! I don't care if you hospital corner or not, sorry nurses, just do it! Do the hard thing and start thinking of the worth of Jesus as you do. Jacob settled where he shouldn't have because he thought it was sufficient to his purposes. And besides, this second place was nicer than that barren Bethel. He should have gone ahead and done the hard thing and gone to Bethel because so very much was at stake. And as a matter of fact, it still is. This is how I want to land. Third point. We are church. Bethel. <laughs> Not coincidentally. We are the new covenant community of the Spirit. So I absolutely love these chapters, but I confess, like I said, I didn't really love them last Sunday night when I started reading through these. God shows us that he's no longer directing the steps of individuals. God is directing the steps of a community of people united together in him. We, as a church, as a campus, are a community. And when I say community, I don't just mean people that live relatively near to one another. I mean, a group of people who have a shared love for another, namely the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is what makes us a community, our shared love for a third party. We bury our dead. We marry off our children. We teach our children of the faithfulness of God. We prepare the generations that will follow us. All the while, we come to Bethel. It's God's plan for us. We come to Bethel and we worship together. Why? Because worship is where we rehearse our identity as God's people. And all this week I've been thinking, I cannot wait to worship with my people, with our people, because it is where we rehearse our identity as God's people. It is not merely walking through some songs and doing some music. You see, what God wants for the children of Jacob is I want you to come together, be consecrated, and I want you to worship together. I want you to declare my excellencies because it is the very best thing for you. Worship helps us to remember who and whose we are. We are Israel, not Jacob. In Christ, true Israel, we are Israel, those who struggle with God because Christ struggled with God. Worship helps us rightly interpret life and our lives. Now, may I please rant <laughs> just for a moment? I have been heartsick and sad that more than I can ever recall, I am seeing so many Christians angry, white knuckled, tense necked, fed up, furious about what's going on around them on every side of every issue. I've never seen so many angry Christians, which tells me that we still have lots of charms and idols that have gotten knocked over. And it's threatening and it's angering. Christians don't get angry. Christians worship. It's an opportunity for all of us as Christians to see what is it that's actually driving me. In what is my hope, my strength, my joy, and my peace? In other words, it's the most dangerous time to live if you do not have a divine interpretation of life and you're not going to get that from social media or from any news outlet. You will not get a divine interpretation of life. You can only get that at Bethel or some of our sister churches in town, but really pretty much just Bethel. <laughs> it's in the Bible, people. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Come to Bethel. 
If your children are seeing and experiencing you interpret life from the flickering pixels of a secular station, you are preparing them for devastation and destruction. I'm just going to yell at you for a moment more. I'm so weary and sad to hear people in this congregation say, I don't really need to go to church anymore. Then how are you interpreting life? What are your kids seeing in you? They're seeing you yell back at the TV because that's always a really profitable dialogue. It is in worship where we divinely interpret reality and our kids need that. See also the book of Judges. It is the recipe and the guarantee for when we fail to teach our children the faithfulness of God, when we rely more on our human institutions and endeavors, it is a guarantee of the destruction of an entire civilization and society. It's only a matter of time. Worship matters. Get to Bethel. We are heading into the Advent season. Next Sunday, November 28th, begins officially on the church calendar, the Advent season. Come to Bethel. Worship. Look around to see these other people who are just as jacked up as you are. Maybe. Close. Who are worshiping, who are declaring the excellencies of their God because they need increasingly for them and for the subsequent generations to divinely interpret reality. We are the church This is Bethel, the home, the dwelling of God Most High. This is where we encounter El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who provides. See, God is faithful. Even in this tragic story where we see these three deaths, the death of the beloved servant, the death of the beloved wife, the death of the beloved father, there's a glimmer of hope. This boy, Benjamin, is born. The first king of Israel was King Saul, a Benjamite. Saul of Tarsus was a Benjamite. This child born in Bethlehem, essentially, the child of shame and sorrow, and yet the child exalted, the son of my right hand. It's pointing us to Jesus, the ultimate redeemer of our souls, God's right hand. So may we come to Bethel and may we worship, may we increasingly love him and find him more believable and more beautiful. Come to Bethel. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this winding, rambling, strange text. But what you have in it for us is that you are our God and we are your people. Already, as we rehearsed, not yet. There will come a day, Father, when you, in Christ, you will send your Son to return for second advent. In the meantime, may we meet and gather as a community and declare your excellencies. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is still relying on the idols of their fathers or of the culture or of the custom, would you give them boldness and courage to bury those things, either literally or metaphorically? Would you introduce them by your spirit among these, your people, to your son, that they would step out of death into life, If that's you somehow this morning, you've made it into a Bible church in downtown Tyler, Texas, and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to believe, not to be able to explain or articulate everything I've just said, but that you would believe that Jesus is the answer and that God loves you. Would you believe that you would understand that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life while you couldn't? He paid the wages of sin because you shouldn't, you mustn't, you can't that you would agree that that's true and that you would place in trust your entire being on that belief? Would you believe? And if you, 
for the first time, if the penny has dropped, and if you believe, I would encourage you, ask you, invite you to come and speak with one of us as pastors or elders or deacons or any other leader or friend that you know while we're downstairs having donuts or anyplace else. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that worship matters, that you have called us, in this context at least, to Bethel. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. May he increase. We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.